Hello, and welcome to the Truth Beyond the News podcast, where the goal is to give you more insight beyond what you hear in the news soundbite. On this episode, I'm going to talk about abortion, and specifically about the Texas law being reviewed, at least partially, by the Supreme Court this week. What's so special about the Texas law? It's known as Senate Bill 8, or SB 8, and it essentially bans abortions if a fetal heartbeat is detected. Testing and documentation is required of the provider, proving when and how such a test was made. There are exceptions for medical emergencies. But what makes this different is the approach to enforcement, which is by giving private citizens the ability to file civil lawsuits against, essentially, a lot of people. Anyone who performs or induces an abortion in violation of the law, anyone who knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion, including paying for or reimbursing costs of the abortion through insurance. So essentially anybody who is has any knowledge or any part of the process. And it awards not less than $10,000 for each abortion that the defendant performed or induced in violation of the law. It can even be up to four years after the abortion. And it clearly calls out state or local officials cannot get involved, like the attorney general or county attorneys. They can't be involved in any of the lawsuits at all. Basically, no one can sue to block the law because there is no state official enforcing it. It's all through civil lawsuits filed privately. As an aside, this isn't new. According to the AP, this tactic has been used in Missouri, Kansas, and Utah, all with new laws within the last year. When can you hear a fetal heartbeat via an ultrasound? According to Healthline, it's as early as five and a half or six weeks after gestation. Basically, from the time of conception, it's about six weeks. It says it can be better assessed between six and a half and seven weeks. So what about the federal laws on abortion? By far the most well-known one is Roe v. Wade, a case from 1973 where the Supreme Court ruled the Constitution protects a pregnant woman's choice to have an abortion without government restrictions, or without at least excessive government restrictions, which then caused a number of other laws relating to abortion to be struck down. It was specifically designed to provide the option, but not like an absolute right, meaning it wasn't totally up to the pregnant woman for the entire duration of their pregnancy. Roe versus Wade put a framework in place that was based on the trimesters of the pregnancy where regulations could be put in place later in the pregnancy, but not very early on. But that trimester system was replaced in 1992 by another Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in that case, they ultimately replaced that trimester system with a new system based on viability. So, and it allowed some states to implement restrictions that applied during the first trimester even, which was not allowed after Roe versus Wade. In that 1992 ruling, four justices wrote or joined an opinion that Roe v. Wade should have been completely struck down at that point in time, just illustrating from 1973 to 1992 how mindsets and interpretations change as society changes. At that same Supreme Court ruling, Chief Justice Rehnquist even questioned the fundamental right to an abortion and the right to privacy, two things that came directly out of Roe v. Wade. Justice Scalia specifically argued that abortion was not a protected liberty at all. So there were certainly a lot of changes in opinions from 1973 to 1992. And society changed a lot, obviously, in that period of time as well. In 2007, the Supreme Court upheld a federal 2003 ban on partial birth abortions, which was only really a ban on a very specific type of abortion, but it was the first ban since the 1973 Roe v. Wade case that the Supreme Court actually upheld. Then, in 2016, the Supreme Court ruled against a Texas 2013 law restricting abortions to only doctors that had admitting privileges to local hospitals, and they also required clinics to meet standards that basically 
of ambulatory surgery centers, making them very high standards for an abortion clinic to maintain. In that 2016 ruling, the Supreme Court essentially blocked that Texas 2013 law as being an undue burden for women seeking an abortion. Then again in 2020, the Supreme Court ruled against another similar law, this time from Louisiana, and it was blocked essentially for the same reasons, of being too much of an undue burden for women seeking an abortion. So where does that leave this Texas law? The Supreme Court is hearing that case, but they're not really hearing it on the merits of whether it should be blocked, but really whether anyone can sue to block the law. So the question is not whether it's constitutional at this point, but whether the United States Department of Justice and there's another plaintiff in a separate case, the ACLU representing a number of abortion providers, it's whether those two entities can actually sue the state of Texas to block the implementation of the law. The arguments are some people won't even know they're pregnant within that six-week period, which is certainly possible, and that the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey case meant that viability was outside of the womb, which is much later than six weeks, meaning that the, the fetus would not be to survive at six weeks old outside of the womb. Even if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the abortion providers or the Department of Justice, it just means they can sue, which really means court proceedings would just start at that point, and then we'll have to work their way through the various levels of the courts before anything actually changes, potentially going back to the Supreme Court in the end. Based on the arguments heard on November 1st, there does seem to be some concern from the judges about how the loophole was used to craft this Texas law, essentially bypassing regular judicial review. And if it is allowed to continue, could that same loophole or tactic be used for other situations? The one that was cited was giving bounties, essentially, to private citizens if someone sells a gun to another person. It would effectively be a way of trying to ban the Second Amendment right to you know, bear arms. Now, in that same AP article I referenced earlier, the Missouri law allowed citizens to sue local law enforcement agencies whose officers actually were enforcing federal gun laws by facing fines up to $50,000 per occurrence. So essentially, they're using that same tactic of having private citizens sue as a way to try to minimize fears that the Biden administration would enact restrictive gun policies. The suggestion is, say the current administration enacts very strict policies, then the Missouri law allows private citizens to sue law enforcement if they actually enforce those federal laws. So you can see how this gets to be very questionable legally. So the Supreme Court hearing on the Texas law is really just about who can sue or whether other entities can sue to block the law. A bigger case is really Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which according to SCOTUS blog is a case that's set to be heard at the Supreme Court on December 1st. And that's actually one that's challenging the constitutionality of a Mississippi law that does have some exceptions, but essentially banning abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. The Supreme Court essentially agreed to take up that first question presented in that case, which is whether all pre-viability bans on elective abortions violate the Constitution. So essentially, can you ban an abortion if the fetus cannot live on its own? That's the question that the court has agreed to take up starting on December 1st with the Mississippi law. So that one is actually going to be a much bigger question at this point because the Texas law is already already implemented. So the most that will happen coming out of this case, most likely from the Supreme Court, is whether the Department of Justice or abortion providers can sue the state to stop the law. Whereas this Mississippi case starting on December 1st is actually really questioning a very specific situation with bans on abortions. 
which basically means if they rule on the Mississippi law before any cases are taken up against the Texas law and actually work their way all the way through the court process, then they actually may become moot anyway because the answer to the Mississippi law may basically contradict anything that's going on with the Texas uh, lawsuits. So that's certainly one we need to watch for. So let's talk about abortion in general. We heard a lot along the lines of COVID-19 with follow the science. So let's follow the science for a minute. According to Dr. Diane Irving, who has a master's and a PhD in a February 1999 article from the International Journal of Sociology and Social Policy, a human being is formed at the time the sperm and egg cell unite, starting with a single cell. And it's actually a really fascinating article because it covers a lot of facts and myths presented from various sides of the argument about when is a human being started and what is a person. It covers things from both a human development perspective as well as a sociological perspective. But the argument is, you know, a human being is actually formed at that very moment the sperm and egg unite. You know, just starting with a single cell. It has a mixture of both mother and father's chromosomes. It's not just a blob of tissues, as some might argue. It's already defined whether it's going to be a particular sex. And, and life begins at that moment. It's not days or weeks in the future. And the development progression is, is very well understood. And it's scientifically proven. And that there's a whole study basically on uh, embryology that are used in fertility clinics and just understanding you know, the entire life cycle process that starts from that moment of conception. The article was actually posted on a Princeton University page, and I found another interesting page off of the Princeton University called Life Begins at Fertilization, and it lists 15 different sources that prove life begins at that one moment of conception. Now, this article or this list of pages was really only up through 1997, so it's been quite a long time since uh, that's been updated, but it's just uh, interesting that those two sources both are coming out of Princeton University. There are many articles on both sides of the equation, but they come down to when is this human being given rights afforded to it by our constitution? Why does one moment the human being has no rights, but in the next, he or she does have them? If we follow the science, conception is the start of an actual human being. No, of course it can't live outside the womb, but there is no doubt it's a human being in development. It's like saying a one-month-old is not an adult, because they're not. But both a one-month-old and a 15-year-old are human beings, but they look and act very differently. But both are human beings at, a different, at different stages of life. A one-month-old can't live on its own outside a house, outside of being proper care. It's essentially the same thing as this, this, these single cells that then keep generating and becoming a fetus. A one-month-old can't live on its own, not really that much different from the fetus that's living inside a mother. To further the argument, there was even a lot of discussion here in Virginia in 2019 about doing abortions in the third trimester, including potential live birth abortions in specific cases. And the laws proposed in Virginia, and presumably other places, would actually allow this if a single doctor made the determination that pregnancy threatened the woman's life or health. So if you can find one willing abortion doctor, then you could abort a fully grown, completely viable baby, meaning viable, livable outside of the, the womb that no one would argue is a human being. I mean, no one's going to argue that if you have a, a, a baby that's, you know, 33 weeks old and someone gets a single doctor to say, oh, their life's in danger, and they document that, then this law, if it had passed, would have allowed the mother 
to have an abortion of that 33-week-old child. Putting those crazy psychotic cases aside of essentially killing a baby that's literally about to be born, there's also the issue with everything has to do with the woman's right and exclude anyone else's right, like that of the father's. You have scenarios where the woman just wants to spite the father for something he did, and that mother can just abort the baby without regard to his rights, because apparently those rights don't matter. In the end, those rights shouldn't matter in the situation of an abortion, because the only rights that matter are those of the new human being growing inside the mother. You can't pick and choose when you want to count this human being as a person, and define that one day he or she matters, but all the days before that, same baby isn't a person. But just magically... One day, nothing, and the next day, something. Yet we all know when we see an ultrasound image or we hear heartbeats or we can feel the kicking that there is a life there and that life is a human being. It may not be the size of that one-month-old, but that one-month-old didn't look or act the same as the 15-year-old either, who doesn't look or act the same as a 40-year-old, yet we know all of them are still human beings, just at different stages in life. The obvious answer is that life begins at conception. It may not be a convenient answer, but it is the truth. So then there are some interesting federal laws or state laws as well that go along with this. There is a law, a federal law from 2004 called the Unborn Victims of Violence Act. It specifies an embryo or fetus inside of a pregnant woman is a legal victim if they are injured or killed in a list of various federal crimes. And then there are 38 states that also support that same issue. In California, for example, the killing of an unborn child or fetus is considered murder. There is also a five-year enhancement, meaning addition, for an injury inflicted during the commission of a felony that results in a miscarriage of a fetus. So we clearly have here where there are many states, even liberal states, and the federal government or federal law that count unborn children as victims. They're counting them as people. So on one hand, we have them counting as legal victims. So we are counting them as people. And then on another hand, we're saying it's okay to murder these people. Clearly uh, a disconnect somewhere. All right. So you might be pro-abortion. Oh, sorry. I guess that's supposed to call it pro-choice. But deep down inside, you know that inside a pregnant mother is a real live human being. You just want the right to kill that human being at a convenience. That's the hard truth of what abortion is. It is murder of a human being. We can argue the morality of exceptions like, you know, the life of the mother or severe abnormalities, rape, incest, etc., whatever. But even those are all just reasons to end someone else's life in favor of someone else's. That's murder, regardless of the reason. It may be legal, but that doesn't change what it is. There are clearly women who are alive today that were a product of rape, and even if that mother gives up the child for adoption because it's too difficult knowing the baby was the product of rape, that mother gives that baby a chance at life, a chance to have his or her own family, a chance to make a difference in the world, maybe something mild, but it could be something dramatic like a significant discovery that benefits the entire world or all of society. There are many people that are conceived out of rape and incest that are not aborted. According to The Atlantic, one such person, Rebecca Kessling, was conceived by rape and told the Texas governor, Rick Perry, at the time, uh, this quote, When you make that rape exception, it's like you're saying to me that I deserve the death penalty for the crimes of my father. According to the U.S. Supreme Court, my father didn't even deserve the death penalty. The Supreme Court has said there is no death penalty for rapists. But you say that I, as the innocent child of rape, 
deserve the death penalty. I think that's a very compelling, thought-provoking quote from someone who was a product of rape. For all of those who have not experienced it, but think it's easy to just say the right thing to do is to have an abortion for those people. Jesse Jackson was actually another such person who was conceived out of rape. His mother was 16 years old at the time, and his father was a 33-year-old neighbor. A year later, the mother, Jesse Jackson's mother, married a man who adopted Jesse. But just imagine how life would be if those people had been murdered or aborted, whatever word you like to use, out of convenience. Jesse Jackson, I think everyone is very well aware, has made significant impacts to society. In all of these people, even if you don't know their names, who have lives and families and children and they have jobs and they make impacts, they might not be something that you know, but they all could be something that a very significant ripple effect. And just imagine what would happen if those people were never born. If you think abortion is harmless, I'd also suggest you watch a movie called Unplanned. It's a story told by a woman who was the youngest Planned Parenthood clinic director in the nation. Very eye-opening. Or something like the movie October Baby. That was a movie about a woman who learned she was the product of a failed abortion and how she lived and made a difference in the lives of other people. We will never know the impact these unborn children will have on the future life of our world. The right thing to do is to protect all human life, and that includes those that are most vulnerable. We do it with the disabled, mentally ill, incapacitated senior citizens maybe, people in comas. We even have laws that do it for our unborn children but only if the murder was without the consent of the mother. So if the mother is murdered, that unborn child is a victim. If the mother wants an abortion, the unborn child is apparently nothing. No crime at all. Abortion really is just a nicer name for murder, because people don't want to be labeled as a murderer. But that's the reality of what an abortion is. Murder is morally wrong, therefore abortion is also morally wrong. People need to call it what it is and recognize that it isn't okay to kill a newborn by leaving it in a dumpster after birth. That's a charge for criminal homicide in most states. But somehow, it is okay if the mother has an abortion a week earlier. Just think about that for a minute. Think about the number of times you may have seen in the news where a child is left to die days old in dumpsters is common, in trash cans, whatever it might be. They are charged with crimes. But an abortion a week or two earlier... No crime at all. It's time we make it crystal clear to everyone that murder is murder, regardless of what name you put on it. And it's time we start protecting the rights of those most vulnerable to include all unborn human beings, which is what they are, and that begins at conception. Thanks for listening to the Truth Beyond the News podcast. It may just be the one place you truly hear the Truth Beyond the News headlines. I hope you enjoyed it and will subscribe or follow the podcast so you receive updates as new episodes are posted. Until next time.